You know how there are three separate and co-equal branches of the federal government, and one of them, the Supreme Court, is apolitical, therefore balancing out the other two? Um, that's actually nonsense. And that's what our podcast, 5 to 4, is all about. 5 to 4 is a podcast about how much the Supreme Court sucks. We take on the Supreme Court's worst decisions about the most important issues, like police abuse, the Second Amendment, and voting rights. Every episode, we reveal the ways in which the Supreme Court contorts the law, makes stupid legal errors, and generally hacks away at our democracy. If you have been surprised by the rightward lurch of the courts, the overturning of Roe v. Wade, etc., we think you'll like 5 to 4, and it'll leave you better equipped for what comes next. Yeah, you'll save a ton on therapy. <laughs> Find 5 to 4 wherever you get your podcasts. Who is Moms for Liberty? Moms for Liberty is a united group of parents across the country that are working to defend our parental rights at all levels of government. We very much saw a need for parents to reclaim their children's education. I like to tell people I unpacked a lot of backpacks. I have four kids, 17, 14, 12, and 10. So I uh, really had a good sense about what was happening in America's public schools. We are seeing our children divided in America's public school classrooms. We want our children to be united together. We want to unfold the full potential of every child in that classroom. We really want parents to have a seat at the table. And if they don't want to give us a seat, we're going to bring our own. If you're a mom like I am, or even if you're not, what you just heard may sound pretty reasonable. School is where our kids spend most of their time, where they learn to read and do math, where they build friendships and figure out how to navigate in the world without us. We parents put a huge amount of trust in our public schools. So it's not surprising that moms want to make sure that schools are doing what they're supposed to do. It's also easy to understand how parents can sometimes feel powerless, like they lack the ability to make change, or that they're being locked out of critical decisions that are affecting their kids. Some might go so far to say that it's natural for moms to come together and organize on behalf of their children. We've always looked in this country to mothers as the special protectors of children and the special protectors of the upbringing of children. That includes in the education area. You know, women have had a hard, long fight toward political equality in this country. But one place women first gained purchase in, in public life was becoming school committee members. The women in Moms for Liberty are tapping into powerful cultural narratives about mothers and deep traditions of women's activism. But what if the change they're advocating for is this. Parents, beware of terms like social justice, diversity, equity, inclusion. Because you have become so open-minded on these issues that your brains have fallen out. They don't care about your children. As a matter of fact, they hate them. They hate your kids. They hate my kids. They hate your kids. They hate my kids. Get it? Yep, that's also Moms for Liberty, an organization whose founders you heard at the top of the show. In just a few years, Moms for Liberty has disrupted school board meetings, enacted book bans, challenged the rights of LGBTQ kids, and fueled a national moral panic around critical race theory, something that's not even taught in K-12 schools. And they've done it all in the name of protecting kids and asserting their parental rights. To many of us, these angry moms came out of nowhere. But when you dig a little deeper, it's clear that there's something else going on behind the scenes. I believe wholeheartedly that this was developed 
not at the kitchen table, as, as they like to tell. I don't believe that grassroots narrative whatsoever. I call them the quintessential political pyramid scheme. And instead of selling comfy yoga pants, they're selling comfort within our classrooms and our curriculum and our libraries. I'm Julie Kohler, and this is White Picket Fence. In just two years, our politics have taken a dramatic turn. In late 2021, it seemed like the time had finally come for action. The pandemic had uprooted school and work and heaped a ton on moms who were already carrying too much. President Biden and congressional Democrats were fighting for policies that could have lightened that load, like a once-in-a-generation investment in childcare, paid leave, and an expanded child tax credit. But it didn't happen. Yes, legislation passed, but all of the care policies just got stripped out. At the same time, much of the political energy shifted back to the suburbs, where new fights were waging over schools, race, LGBTQ rights, and the very stories we tell ourselves about our nation and our history. And moms were at the center of it all. Or at least... That's what it looked like on the surface. But while moms may have been the ones agitating at school board meetings, what we're experiencing is a much deeper fight for power with far-reaching implications for our freedoms, families, and democracy. As I watched it all happen, I realized that there was a lot to unpack about why, in 2023, the identity of mother remains so central to our political debate. This season on White Picket Fence, we're looking at moms as a political force. How images of mothers are used to advance political agendas, the benefits and risks of grounding so much of women's activism in their identities as mothers, who is included, and who gets left out. Mothers are not a monolith, and their activism has taken very different forms throughout history and today. But right now, a certain type of mother-driven activism is having a resurgence. It's conservative, largely white, and it's already made a huge impact. There are lots of organizations in this space, but there's one that seems to dominate the news, Moms for Liberty. For this episode, we'll explore the image Moms for Liberty presents, who they really are, and why what they're doing matters. To tell that story, we need to go back to 2020, to a small beachside community in East Central Florida where a local educator decided to run for school board. My name is Jennifer Jenkins. I am a school board member in Brevard County, Florida, and I represent our District 3. Jennifer didn't know very much about local politics when she decided to enter the race, but she knew a lot about public schools. She works as a speech-language pathologist, and she's married to a middle school teacher. She really cared about issues like equity and adequate pay for teachers. When COVID hit, Jennifer supported masking, vaccines, and regular testing. When she spoke with community members, they'd ask what her plans were for keeping kids safe. Jennifer thought her message was getting through. Still, as election day got closer, she didn't know what her chances would be. That was, in part, because of her opponent. She was a well-known Republican elected official here in Brevard County. I'm in a very red county, but I also live in a very red district. So the chances of me winning statistically were pretty slim. Yet Jennifer did win, by a lot. Her 10-point victory may have signaled a high level of community support. 
but not everyone was happy. A month into Jennifer's term, new people started showing up to school board meetings. They were mad, and Jennifer was their prime target. I do joke, though, and say they were really moms against Jennifer Jenkins. They were focusing on me. Everything I said, everything I did and stood for, even ridiculous things of what I'm wearing. They would come up to me after meetings and record me without me knowing with their cell phones and post it on their Facebook page, mocking what I'm saying or doing. It was really just a campaign against me. One of the ringleaders was Jennifer's former opponent, Tina Deskovich. Jennifer noticed that many of the people Tina was rallying weren't even public school parents. They were moms who sent their kids to private schools or homeschooled their kids. Or they were older with grown children. But the group kept growing and getting louder. By December 2020, they had a name, Moms for Liberty. I like to apologize to America. (laughs) My opponent is what eventually came to be one of the founding members of Moms for Liberty. We heard the voices of Tina Deskovich and her Moms for Liberty co-founder, Tiffany Justice, at the beginning of the show. In those news clips, they made themselves sound like a couple of regular moms who just wanted a seat at the table. But what were they so concerned about? Their topics were kind of all over the place. I refer to it as throwing spaghetti at the wall, just kind of seeing what would stick and kind of gather them some more support. At first, the Moms for Liberty protesters were angry about masks. Then they turned their attention to the district's LGBTQ guidelines for school sports and gendered bathrooms. As Jennifer describes it, the guidelines are pretty standard. Although the district had been working on them for months, Moms for Liberty claimed that they'd been cooked up in secret without parents' knowledge or consent. At the school board meetings, things went from bad to worse. What we had in March of 2021 on our school board and outside of our school board is what I always refer to as our own mini-insurrection. We had people banging on the glass windows to get inside because we were at max capacity, screaming in sheriff officers' faces, borderline spitting on them, signs with hateful words, screaming at children with megaphones, telling them that they're pedophiles, that they're going to hell, they deserve what they're getting. They created this insane gauntlet for these children to walk through to come inside and access our public meeting. The things that they said inside, it was absolutely disturbing and disgusting. It is a day I will never forget. Never forget. Brevard County may have been ground zero for this kind of organizing, but the tactics quickly spread. Suddenly, women in Moms for Liberty shirts were popping up all across the country. It was the kind of exponential growth that struck some people as odd. So I began looking into Moms for Liberty, and uh, all these organizations were, you know, brand new, a few months old, if that, and yet they were already networked, they were claiming affiliations. I went through Morris Cunningham is a retired professor of political science of at UMass Boston. Defending Education website, and I found something interesting. They didn't have many members, one, two, seven, you know, 33 or something, but they were small numbers, uh, big claims and small reality, and so that piqued my interest a great deal. There's a reason why Morris was so intrigued by Moms for Liberty. As the author of Dark Money and the Politics of School Privatization, he knows a thing or two about the conservative movement and its anti-public school agenda. From the outset, he recognized Moms for Liberty as a real threat, and he's been tracking them ever since. I follow them on with Google Alert every day, and every day my mailbox fills up with three, four, five, sometimes six, seven, eight media stories about Moms for Liberty. 
often directly to Breitbart, Daily Caller, Steve Bannon's uh, uh, podcast. Moms for Liberty quickly got some pretty loud right-wing media megaphones. How did a handful of everyday moms from Florida manage that? To Morris, something didn't sit right. I mean, imagine a, a group like, you know, try and form a small parents, uh, not small necessarily, maybe you have ambitions, form a parents group, and then in a month you're on Rush Limbaugh's program, and then you're on Fox, and then you're with Tucker, and you're in Breitbart. Really, meteoric rise, before you know it, you're hosting a fundraiser featuring Megan Kelly, who happens to, according to her website, get a, a speaker's fee of between fifty dollars and $100,000. All this in a matter of months. If you view Moms for Liberty as a grassroots activist group, their trajectory seems kind of implausible. There's something else going on here. As one of the Moms for Liberty anonymously told The New Yorker recently, essentially, we're a communications operation. And that's true. Here's the thing about Tina Deskovich and Tiffany Justice. They weren't just suburban moms who suddenly felt moved to action. They were conservative activists with well-honed communication and PR skills. In fact, Tina ran her own communications consulting business, and she brought that expertise to the fight. In the early days of the pandemic, after her school board defeat, she and Tiffany sensed an opportunity to capitalize on the frustration that parents were feeling, to seed new fears about what was being taught and who was teaching it, and to drive powerful anti-government narratives by declaring war on public schools. And they had support from some powerful allies. Well, it just speaks to the fact that there's an existing edifice there already. In this case, it seems to lead back to Leadership Institute. The Leadership Institute may not be a household name, but its political influence is legendary. They've basically served as the talent scouts of the conservative movement for more than 40 years. With an annual budget approaching $30 million, they have a huge reach. Among their 200,000 alumni are some of the most prominent names in Republican politics. Mitch McConnell, Mike Pence, Jim Jordan. The Leadership Institute provided Moms for Liberty with trainings, connections to high-ranking Republican officials, and more tangibly, financial support. Last July, Moms for Liberty held its first national summit. According to their website, the Leadership Institute was the biggest sponsor. Thanks to that investment, the trainings, the connections, the money. Moms for Liberty grew quickly. They claim to have developed almost 200 chapters across more than 30 states. They're featured regularly in major media outlets. I mean, we're devoting an entire episode to them. All of this sounds impressive, but not everyone believes the hype. There's this really strong part of me that just doesn't believe that they are as big and as powerful as we believe that they are. I find it very difficult to believe. And so when they say numbers of their membership, quite frankly, I think they're talking about Facebook likes. <laughs> I don't think those are active members within, within chapters and organizations. So basically what you're saying and what your research has shown is that their oversized media presence makes them look larger than they actually are. I think that's the case. More after the break. White Picket Fence is supported by Planned Parenthood. 
Planned Parenthood ensures that all people get the care, education, and resources they need to make decisions about their bodies, their lives, and their futures. Planned Parenthood stands for care, no matter what. Through nearly 600 health centers across the country, Planned Parenthood staff provides high-quality, non-judgmental, and affordable health care, including birth control, STI treatment and testing, cancer screenings, wellness exams, and abortion care, where it's legal. Planned Parenthood's trained health educators are able to answer your questions about sexual health in real time, totally free and totally confidential. Text 774636-PP-INFO to get answers. For more information or to book an in-person or virtual appointment, visit PlannedParenthood.org or call 1-800-230-PLAN. Stay tuned until the end of the episode for a conversation with Danica severino Lynn, VP of Abortion Access at Planned Parenthood Federation of America. Back in Brevard County in 2021, the chaos that Moms for Liberty had sparked was escalating quickly. In late August, the school board, in a 3-2 to two vote, issued a district-wide mask mandate. Jennifer was part of the three-vote majority. At the time, the COVID situation in the county was pretty dire. We had already closed an entire elementary school. We were struggling to get testing. At this time, vaccines weren't available, I don't believe, to children yet. We had lost 10 staff members. We had multiple staff members in ICU. Days later, Florida Governor Ron DeSantis came to Brevard County and held a press conference. Flanked by local Republican officials, he denounced mask mandates and the school boards that enacted them. Jennifer, who had shown up to hear what the governor had to say, was asked to leave. And later that evening, the chaos arrived on her doorstep. About 25 people stood outside of my house. I was home with my daughter and my husband. The hate that was being spewed It lasted for a really long time, probably about three hours until dark. I just couldn't take it anymore. And I I went outside and I followed them around the corner because I wanted to see them leave. They swung a don't tread on me flag in my face. It was like an inch from from knocking me in the face. They ran into my face and started coughing, saying they were going to give me COVID, recording me again and mocking me. And they ended up putting that somewhere on the Internet. And then I had eventually went back inside of my house and my neighbors had stayed and said that they were brandishing their weapons in the parking lot just to kind of intimidate the neighbors before they had left. I had the next morning woken up to my property being vandalized, my plants being chopped down, my trees being poisoned. They had burned FU in my grass with fertilizer. The attacks didn't stop there. In the afternoon, she got a call from a detective. They had gotten a visit from the Department of Children and Family Services that there was a claim made that I was abusing my daughter, that I was burning her with cigarettes, that I was selling drugs out of my home, that I was beating her in the front yard. And I had to invite this person into my house. I had to answer questions as if this was happening. And I had to take them to a play date where my daughter was with someone that I don't know very well. And they had to, you know, check underneath her clothes to see if I was abusing her. To be quite frank, I was living in hell for a year of people harassing me and victim shaming me and saying that I was seeking attention. Jennifer decided she had had enough. At the next school board meeting, she spoke publicly about the harassment and abuse. 
I don't reject people coming here and speaking their voice. They, they do it all the time. We, we, don't, we don't stop them from doing that. I don't reject them standing outside my home. Um, I reject them following me around in a car, following my car around. I reject them saying that they're coming for me, that, they're, that I need to beg for mercy. I reject that when they are using their First Amendment rights on public property, they're also going behind my home and brandishing their weapons to my neighbors that they're making false DCF claims against me to my daughter, that I have to take a DCF investigator to her playdate to go underneath her clothing and check for burn marks. That's what I'm against. Her statement went viral, and things did begin to change. The worst of the harassment subsided. But Moms for Liberty's influence? It only grew stronger. Where they have taken control is the narrative at the state level. Quite frankly, I think that it was intentional. I think they've always been there. They have justified their involvement at the state level in our Department of Education and in Ron DeSantis' administration, to be quite frank. And that's the scary part, because they're making decisions right now, as we speak, (laughs) about our civics curriculum, about trainings for our media specialists, about vetting the books that we have inside of our classrooms, about the things that we can talk about and teach to our children. That's the scary part. Moms for Liberty moved beyond just getting attention and making school board meetings chaotic. Now there's a focus on getting actual state policy passed in Florida with a powerful ally. Today, many people may think of Florida Governor Ron DeSantis as a rising star in the Republican Party and potentially as Donald Trump's most formidable challenger in the next presidential race. But back in 2020, he was just gaining his political footing. He had eked out his 2018 victory by fewer than 30,000 votes. During his first two years in office, he governed as something of a moderate. But by March... It was literally like that switch flipped. I remember it clear as day. That switch flipped with Governor DeSantis. The Florida Democratic Party was in a state of disarray. And DeSantis saw an opportunity. And so then he said, I could do what I want to do. Because there's no one that is still nipping at my heels that I have to worry about that can not only come back, but maybe get those 30,000 votes and more. That's Representative Michelle Rayner. She's a civil rights attorney and a member of the Florida State Legislature. She was first elected to office in 2020 and had a front-row seat to how DeSantis latched on to the narratives that Moms for Liberty was driving locally. But I was just so blown away that we were seeing that cruelty play out in real time in a way that I don't think that we had really ever seen before. We have seen, you know, anti-abortion bills. We've seen anti-LGBTQ bills. We've seen anti-Black and and racist bills. But it was in a way that we had not really seen in modern history, like probably within the last 15 to 20 years. And then you had the the sports ban and the anti-protest bill, which was in direct response to George Floyd's murder. There's also the Stop Woke Act which essentially makes it impossible to teach things like structural racism and important elements of our history. And the Don't Say Gay Bill, which bans talking about sexual orientation and gender identity for kids K through three. Even though at that age, kids don't take sex ed. And of course, there's a reason for this political maneuvering. 
all of these bills relating up to 2022, a midterm election year. You gin up your base. You say these gays, the groomers, are coming for your children. You make up stories that aren't true. You say that little white kids are being told that they are responsible for slavery. Not happening. I asked for receipts. There are no receipts. My mom always says a lie moves quicker than the truth. What had initially felt like angry moms throwing spaghetti at the wall in chaotic school board meetings morphed into a comprehensive conservative agenda. At its core was a story about schools as sites of indoctrination and politicization, and parents, moms especially, as the frontline defense against it. When you have someone that says, I am the only one that cares about your kids here. I am the only one that's going to fight for you. I need you. And then I'm going to empower you to do this. And it becomes this like sick, evil, like tsunami of power that happens. The purpose of our school system is to educate kids, not to indoctrinate our kids. Gender-affirming care. They're actually giving very young girls double mastectomies. They want to castrate these young boys. That's wrong. We're not going to be teaching some six-year-old kid that they may have been born in the wrong body. That's not going to happen. They need to focus on, on traditional education, and parents should have the right to send their kid knowing that that's going to be the focus. I'm sure for many of us, this language is disturbing. I mean, how many parents actually believe that their kids are being sexually groomed by teachers or are being taught hatred against white people by reading classic books like Toni Morrison's The Bluest Eye? And yet, DeSantis turned the issues that moms were agitating about into some pretty extreme state legislation. Moms for Liberty played a powerful role behind the scenes. For Representative Rayner, the cozy relationship between her Republican colleagues, Governor DeSantis, and Moms for Liberty was on full display. He was able to elevate, I think, a voice that had felt a little bit silenced. And he gave them a platform. I will tell you that my first term in the House, there was times that the moms of liberty groups would have free reign of the Capitol, whereas any other progressive group, you would have to go through all the checks and balances. You would have to go through all of the security measures. You couldn't go in certain places. I would pop up and there is a, a mom for liberty member in a part of the members only area. Politically, Moms for Liberty also helped shore up support among DeSantis's weakest demographic, younger women. Christian Ziegler, the vice chairman of the Florida Republican Party, has said openly that after years of trying and failing, Moms for Liberty has succeeded in bringing more 20- and 30-year-old women into the party fold. His statement is particularly noteworthy when you consider that Christian Ziegler's wife is Bridget Ziegler, the third co-founder of Moms for Liberty. She's stepped away from the group, but just so happens to now serve as the Leadership Institute's Director of School Board Programs. Just as important, Moms for Liberty projects an image that's valuable to DeSantis and other conservatives. One that Morris told me helps soften their extremism. Oh, their moms and their mama bears. You know, it evokes the image of, of caring mothers doing all to protect their children from some threat. 
it's nicer to see, you know, pleasant-looking suburban moms rather than the guy who runs the Leadership Institute, who happens to be an 82-year-old veteran right-winger named Morton Blackwell. There's a heavy emphasis on moms because, I mean, gosh, mom and apple pie, who doesn't like mom? (laughs) Make no mistake, where DeSantis and his conservative colleagues are headed is extreme. Representative Rayner anticipates an even more contentious legislative session, which has only just begun. What I'm hearing is there's going to be attacks on LGBTQ people, transgender youth, medication abortion, folks in the process of IVF, an abortion ban bills. They're going to attempt to criminalize parents for trying to give their children gender-affirming care. Of course, all this matters outside of Florida. DeSantis, as we know, is pondering a presidential run. And conservatives across the nation are watching and doubling down on what they see as his success, Moms for Liberty's success. We heard it just last month from Governor Sarah Huckabee Sanders and her response to the State of the Union. Upon taking office just a few weeks ago, I signed executive orders to ban CRT, racism, and indoctrination in our schools eliminate the use of derogatory term Latinx in our government, repealed COVID orders and said never again to authoritarian mandates and shutdowns. Right now we're at a crossroads. Follow the breadcrumbs that Moms for Liberty and Ron DeSantis are dropping, and we're headed toward a very different country, one that goes to great lengths, including dismantling democracy, in order to enshrine a very particular vision of family into law. It's a vision that, as Representative Rayner says, taps into that really white supremacist belief of this is what family looks like and this is what family should be, and that's just not real. More on that in a couple of episodes. But in order to effectively combat the right's retrovision of family and the motherhood activism that supports it, we on the left are going to have to grapple with motherhood ourselves. My own identity as a mom and frankly, as a single mom, was part of the impetus for this season of the show. I want people to have a clear-eyed view of what's happening, to see how motherhood is being used to advance a dangerous agenda, and to provide encouragement and support to the millions of moms who say, Moms for Liberty does not speak for me. I think that we have to fight and push through the fatigue. I get it. Like, I get it. I'm a Black queer woman that serves in Ronald Dion DeSantis' legislature. But I also tell people, if I don't give up, no one else has the right to give up. And so, yes, take your time, do your deep breathing, do all those things that you need to do. But we have a fight on our hands and it's a winnable fight. But I think, to me, it comes down to the people. It has always been power in people. It has always been power in movements. And those movements are not necessarily political. Those movements are just people who love their community, love their families, and love other people. And that is how we've seen change. And that is what we need to get back to. But I'm also searching for some answers. As someone who was political long before I became a mom, I want to know, do I have to rely upon my motherhood identity in order to have my voice heard? Is it possible to build a different type of motherhood politics? To demonstrate politically what many of us already know? That motherhood looks and sounds all kinds of ways. And there's power in that diversity. 
Over the next several episodes, we'll get into all of those questions and more. But to begin, we need to figure out just how we got here. Tune in next week as we travel back to the birthplace of the conservative movement, Southern California, and the suburban mothers at the center of it all. Where they once called themselves patriots or patriotic women, you know, they really didn't have a way of describing their importance other than they were fighting communism, as they saw it. Now they were conservatives. White Picket Fence is a Wonder Media Network production. Our producers are Maddie Foley and Taylor Williamson, with production support from Abby Delk. Our editor is Lindsay Cradwell. Executive producer is Jenny Kaplan. Original music by Sean Patel. On this season of White Picket Fence, we're talking about the political power of motherhood. Over the course of our six episodes, you're going to hear from two women whose work and whose stories intersect with this topic, thanks to our sponsor, Planned Parenthood. In our first episode, we talked about how Moms for Liberty weaponizes their motherhood. I wanted to ask Danica Severino Wynn, Vice President of Abortion Access at Planned Parenthood Federation of America, about the effect of this tactic on her work as a midwife. When I think about the idea of women weaponizing their motherhood, the first thing that comes to mind is the Supreme Court's oral arguments in the Dobbs v. Jackson women's health case. That's the case that led to the overturn of Roe v. Wade. And one of the themes of that oral argument that kept coming up was, but why couldn't somebody just choose adoption? Or there are plenty of fire stations or other safe places to drop off an unwanted child. Why would somebody choose abortion? The idea that choice is the same for everyone and the upholding of motherhood or choosing motherhood as a virtuous option, I think, has come up time and again and really illustrates just how white women historically in the reproductive health space have weaponized their privilege, class, and race to really take up a lot more space than needed in these conversations instead of centering the people who are often most impacted by the policies that are put in place as a result of this advocacy.